the National Archives podcast series, Colonial Lives, Careers and Policies, researching the printed papers of the Colonial Office, presented by Dan Guilfoyle. Good afternoon, my name's Daniel Guilfoyle. I'm one of the diplomatic and colonial record specialists at the National Archives. And welcome to this talk about colonial printed papers. And when I say that, I, I actually mean the papers that were printed in the colonies and brought to London, as opposed to the uh, printed um, correspondence, which was produced by the colonial office itself. Historians have often noted that Britain was unwilling to establish colonies, preferring to use kind of trading networks and companies to, get, to go first. But once a colony was established, a governor was put in place, and his function was to proclaim legislation via ordinances and proclamations and to appoint officials to run the government and administer the colony. These kinds of proclamations had to be printed. They were printed as notices and, and stuck around town. As time went by, colonial governments became more complicated. Executive councils were appointed and legislative councils elected. And they produced more and more documentation. By the beginning of the 19th century, printing presses are quite widespread in the colonies, so there is this capacity to print documentation. And from the 1850s, what we might call the colonies a settlement, ones like um, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, um, the Cape Colony, had responsible governments. In other words, ministers were, were responsible to parliaments, which were one way or the other elected. And at that stage, you know, the, the amounts of documentation produced mushrooms... So there's a lot of these printed papers associated with colonial parliaments. But the question you might ask is, how, how did they get to London? Well, in 1817, the Department of War and Colonies requested that statistical material should be returned to London, especially ones with details of staff members, their salaries and so forth. And later on, about 20 years later, in the 1830s, the Secretary asked that all useful printed material, printed and published material, should be brought to London. So all this stuff was bound into volumes, ended up in the Colonial Office Library, and from there ended up at the National Archives or the Public Record Office as it was then. So what type of material is this? It kind of fall, falls into four categories, really. First of all, acts, which, as it states, were the acts of Parliament or acts of legislative assemblies. And there are miscellaneous series, which mostly consist of statistical material, blue books and so forth. And then government gazettes, which were a government newspaper in which uh, announcements were made, um, legislation was published and so forth. And sessional papers, which are the printed papers of executive and legislative assemblies. The way they're organised on the catalogue is that for each of these types of record, class of record, there's a separate series for each individual colony. You'll notice there's also a break in 1925, 1926. That's because of the establishment of the Dominion's office. And then we, we have DO series after that. But essentially the series just keep carrying on. The other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these colonies were amalgamated and became federal. So in the case of um, Australia, I think it was in 1900 we get the Confederation of Australia. And after that, there's an Australian series which kind of corresponds to these New South Wales ones. But the thing to remember is that because these were, these were federal governments, the early states continued to have their kind of provincial parliaments. 
So the new South Wales series carries on after 1900. So you've got to remember these um, series kind of exist in parallel. So there might be a couple of places you might want to look. And also keep in mind that colonies like Nigeria were amalgamated as a several earlier colonies as well. So there might be a fairly complicated structure as far as that was concerned. It's a very large collection and a comprehensive one. Although other copies have been printed, in some cases many copies were printed, they're dispersed around the world. Our collection is getting on for complete anyway. The British Library also collected these documents and they also have a very substantial collection too, but I think ours is the most complete. Just an example of an act which is taken from the Union of South Africa in 1913. This is a fairly notorious piece of legislation. It was the act which reserved most of the landmass of South Africa for, for white occupation and reserved only, only about 10% for black occupation. After this page, there follows the text of the Act, and at the end we find a schedule of areas which goes on for several pages, detailing those areas which were reserved for black occupation or African op- occupation. And it's an important legal document in South Africa. These Acts are pretty easy to find, you know, you, you know the year, you, look, you identify the series, you can use um, the catalogue. Well, this book by Mandy Banton gives all these series in an alphabetical listing at the back. Very useful book. Moving on to Colonial Blue Books. These are essentially statistical books. And one of the interesting points, I think, from a family history point of view is that they contain all employees in the, in the establishment. So this one for Hong Kong in 1924, we get these, this is an index at the beginning, and we get these lists of staff together with the, with the posts, date of appointment, name, salary, and so forth. These are quite big. The one for Hong Kong actually consists of about 200 pages, very detailed. None of these have been digitised, though, so it's pretty hard work, I, I think, to locate individuals. Just another page from the same book is a list of all those who were receiving pensions in the colony. From, from the colonial government. Apart from that particularly useful section of the Blue Book, there's just miscellaneous statistics covering any topic you like, really. And this one is to do with hospital diets. So we dealt with Blue Books and Acts. Blue Books, again, provided you know, you, you know the year and you look for the series in, in the book or on the catalogue, quite easy to find. There's no problems with them. The next class of records I'd like to take a look at are government gazettes. And as I mentioned briefly earlier on, these are government publications in which the colonial governments use to make announcements and and, and to publicise their policies. Guy Granham in his book Tracing Your West Indian Ancestors notes that they're a very important genealogical resource so he says they contain, amongst other things, birth marriages and death notices, including occasional obituaries of notable people, notices of proceedings and sales of property in the Court of Chancery and Petty Sessions, lists of people applying for liquor, dog and gun licences, lists of jurors, druggists, chemists or pharmacists, constables, voter solicitors, nurses, medical practitioners and militia, notices of sales of lands, public appointments, leave of absence and resumption of duty, notices relating to cases of intestacy, guardianship and wills, notices on applications for naturalisations, inquests into shipwrecks, ships entering and clearing port, 
sometimes with the name of first-class passengers, lists of people paid parish relief, and tax lists. So there's a lot in there. I've just done a bit of an, a very brief analysis of the Government Gazette for the Cape of Good Hope for January 19, 1850. And I've just copied, photographed some of the names of lists which are in there. Apart from names of lists, it was a place where general news relating to government policies could be put out. Secondary legislation, in other words, the equivalent of statutory instruments nowadays, are published there. And lots of advertisements as well. They look like old-fashioned newspapers. They don't really have any pictures. They consist of very dense texts. But within them are many lists. And, and here, for example, is, is a list of marriages, christenings, and, and deaths follow on at, at the end. This one is for the Cathedral Church, city of Cape Town. So it's, they're, they're quite selective. Only the ones which, which have taken place at the main churches are in here. But nevertheless, they're continuous. And the Gazettes for the Cape are published weekly. So it's nevertheless a, you know, a reasonable amount of, of BMDs are, are captured there. So again, it's, it's a useful thing for family history. But on the other hand, because these things are, are published monthly and carry on for quite a long time, it's a very useful way, I think, of, of getting a, a picture of what the economy was doing in the Western Cape. You, know, you, can, you can see the number of insolvencies, which type of businesses are going bust, and so forth. Arrivals by ship in the harbour at Cape Town. Again, they're continuous. There's a, a list for every, every week. Only first-class passengers are mentioned, so by, by no means complete, but nevertheless quite useful. I don't really know why, but... Colonial banks, and, and there are lots of these banks. A list of shareholders are always given for the annual meeting. The Cape of Good Hope was also a, a, a slave economy. Slavery was abolished, as elsewhere in the British Empire, in 1834. But the colony suffered from a, a perennial labour shortage. Obviously, the end of slavery would have some impact on that. So, in its place, was instituted a rather draconian system of most and servants legislation, which were extremely unfavourable to labour. At the end of slavery, people were, ex-slaves were, were bound by indentures, and in a sense, well, not really in a sense, but in a way it, it was possibly a kind of slavery by another name. Apart from... We're now returning to the very first page of, of the Gazette, which was rather densely printed... And there's just a bit here on policy on the Eastern Cape border. The colony was expanding eastwards into the Eastern Cape, coming into contact all the time with African societies. There's a fairly regular state of warfare there. And this is just an article on policing, really. And he he describes how how useful African police were in, in in tracking livestock and how this was something that the colonists would never be able to do. Because that's a good historical source for this reason. And another one on the murder in the, in the country that's known as, known as Lesotho, Lesotho land as it was then. The next bit of this presentation, and the bulk of it, is going to be on um, sessional papers. These are, these are a set of papers which are very much like our, command paper, our parliamentary command papers today. They, they consist of a, a number of elements. One of them are the um, proceedings of the councils themselves. So the record of what legislation was passed, which debates took place. They aren't really equivalent of our present-day Hansard, 
because they only represent uh, proceedings in a fairly sketchy way, in a fairly factual way. So we don't really get any sense of debate from them. Interestingly, there are for some colonies Hansard, but we, we don't collect those, and, and um, you'd have to go to the British Library to have a look at those. They do have some of them there. But as I say, they, can, they consist of a number of elements, apart from the proceedings themselves, the kind of diary of the assemblies, as it were. They consist of commissions of inquiry. And commissions of inquiry normally, as they are nowadays, commissioned when there's some particular problem, some particularly acute problem. They consist of reports and evidence. And the evidence is usually presented in a way that's more or less verbatim or certainly claims to be verbatim. So we get you know, the full accounts of what people said. Select committees are normally made up of people who are in the assemblies, the equivalents of our MPs and, and, and experts. And they often deal perhaps with more kind of chronic problems and problems of policy. Some of printed correspondence which is a bit like our confidential print in, in the colonial office series. So when, when a set of correspondence was considered sufficiently important and might be printed up as a paper and circulated in Parliament. As government became more complicated, various departments were set up, and you'd expect to find, say, a, a department of public works or a medical department. Departments of native administration were fairly regular in colonial governments. They submitted annual reports and those are also to be found in the sessional papers. And again, they occur in regular series year after year after year. And from time to time, assemblies would commission reports on a specific topic by an expert in a particular field, you know, like a a, a geologist or an agricultural scientist. And even from the 1850s, as we shall see, these kinds of officials were being appointed in the colonies. This, this is a very important collection and a, a very significant collection for colonial history. It's difficult to get an idea of the, the number of these papers we have, but if you consider that, say, the, um, the ones for Cape of Good Hope for, say, 1890, would probably consist of about six or seven or eight fat volumes, which are about that big. And if you think there's that for each year and then for each colony. Although, although the um, amount for each colony con- varies considerably, it's, it's a very big volume of, of documents. And as I said earlier, we, we have a pretty complete set of these. If you come to look at these on the catalogue, there are some problems in a sense, um, and I'll just do a very brief search of the catalogue. Say I was interested in the sessional papers for the Cape of Good Hope, for 1892. So pulling up all the ones we have for 1892, we find we get nine results. And they didn't tell you anything. They didn't tell you very much. We see that um, there's an index, there's, there's a legislative assembly, council and assembly, and these appendixes. Now, the legislative council assembly bit is the record of proceedings. It's not terribly interesting unless you're interest in the the progress of a piece of legislation. Not that fascinating. But on the other hand, these other appendixes, they they actually are the the sessional papers associated with with the Assembly. On the catalogue, there isn't really anything there apart from telling us that, so we can't really find them. And if we were, say, interested in medical history, you know, we we wouldn't really get anything from the catalogue. It's really a matter of examining the hard copy in this case. So if we we go back to... uh, 
the presentation. I'm just going to go through um, a number of these types of reports and just give you a bit of a taste of the kind of things that are in them. And the first thing I've got here is a table of contents to one of the, one of the volumes of, of sessional papers. They're given a number. They're listed by number. There's no kind of alphabetical um, theme there. And you can just see there's a fair variety of things. And talking national education, um, penal establishment. So in this case, it would be a matter of looking through these and seeing if there's anything interesting. In 1854, there'd been in Australia, in the colony of Victoria, there'd been a gold rush. And um, the, the pop- urban population had increased very rapidly. And there were various um, political and social problems associated with that. In 1852, there was, there was a, a rebellion. The miners um, revolted. They were, they were really after voting rights and changes to the licensing laws. And as a result of that, the, the, this rebellion was put down very violently. There was a commission of inquiry, and this, this is just a page out, but the document itself is very big. It's about 400 pages long. And it deals with the politics of the rebellion, but also deals with the state of the gold mining industry, technological change in it. And this particular page is about, about machines which are called puddling machines. And they were kind of centrifuges which were used to, um, to filter out gold, the, the fine particles of gold from the slurry. The practice was to, enter, to, to empty the, the slurry back into the stream where the gold was, um, and as a result of that, it prevented those who, who did a gold panning you know, from, from carrying on. So apart from this report about the state of play on, on the um, gold fields, there's lots of evidence taken from individuals. Again, if, if we have ancestors who, who were gold miners in Australia, it, it could very well be that they will have given evidence to this commission. Linked to this report is a report by um, the geological surveyor and uh, even at this stage in the 1850s, we see that the, the, the government was very interested in employing um, scientists to, to, um, to harness them to, to um, economic development. And again, he, he, we find um, a substantial report on, on geology with some diagrams. Some speculation about what the future holds for, for mining in, in, in Victoria Colony. And he thinks that the goal there will you know, be, be the... the economic bedrock of the colony for many years to come. Here's another report, which is a select committee report. So this is a committee that's, that's been set up by members of the Assembly on the sale of liquor and the laws relating to that. Again, we get verbatim evidence. The names, people are named here. In this case, um, a doctor's being questioned about the effects of drink on the mining community. And uh, he complains that how this contributes to social misery and wretchedness and he also notes at the end that in warm climates, spirituous liquors are more, more fatal and deleterious in the results. They produce delirium tremens and other diseases, and they're very much more fatal in their operation upon the brain. So it's, it's, um, it's very much a theme among uh, medics at this time in the colonies that there's something special about the colonies that makes things particularly bad for your health. So again, it, it fits into the broader theme of, of medical history in that sense. And also, it does name this chapter on Singleton, who gives an account of his thoughts on uh, drink in the colony. There's also an interview of a policeman, Mr Robert Cummings, and he notes the, the linking of um, 
of the sale of, of alcoholic drinks with, with the existence of brothels and so forth. He says that every, every brothel in town is a grog shop and nearly all the lodging houses are also slight grog shops. So it's an inter- interesting bit of um, social history. You know, it's often been noted by historians that you know, liquor can be used as a means of social control and here this is seen as malfunctioning and, and the colonial government is, is looking for a way of controlling the supply of, of um, alcohol in a more useful way. Moving on to Canada in the 1870s, these are papers submitted to the Senate. We're talking about Canada now because Canada became a dominion in 1870, I think. So, so we have a, a definite Canadian series now as opposed to a Quebec series and, 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 uh, or an Ontario series as would have existed before. This is an example of an indexing system used in these papers. It's, it's just an index that's done by simple subject terms, and it gives you a page number, and that takes us on to a, a, a page in the, in the table of contents. So finding documents in, these, in this series is much easier, say, than it was in the Australian one. And this is an example of um, printed correspondence. In the late 1860s, the rebellions in Ireland by the Fenian Brotherhood and one aspect of this rebellion was that there were incursions from the United States into Canada. Obviously an important subject, so the, the correspondence has been printed up and submitted to, to the Assembly, or to the Senate in this case. And again, you get this quite good description about what happened. It's a pretty much a blow-by-blow account. Late on Thursday night, our scouts brought some word that a body of raiders had passed the frontier, but the information was not precise as to numbers. Supposed to be from 50 to 100 strong. So it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a good kind of factual account and a, a valuable source of information on that particular subject. It's worth considering as well that how, how do these fit in with the documents we have in the original correspondence series? And in a case like this, where it's obviously linked to, to British policy because the British government were concerned about what was happening in Ireland, you'd expect to find a lot more in the original correspondence for Canada, I think. So it'd be worth using both sets of documents together in this case. Moving on to another set of printed correspondence, though. This one is to do with the condition of um, Indians in the, in the province of Manitoba, which became part of Canada in 1870. Again, it, it gives an account of relations with Indians with whom treaties have been made, which handed over land in exchange for various concessions, one of which is, was a supply of food. And he says it's impossible to be too particular in carrying out the terms of the arrangements made with these people. They recollect with astounding accuracy every stipulation made of the treaty. And if we expect our relations with them to be of the kind which is desirable to maintain, we must fulfil our obligations with scrupulous fidelity. And you can imagine this man, you know, he's, he's out on the front, he, he, he finds he can't fulfil the terms of the treaty. And again, he's, ple- he's pleading with the central government in Canada, that's some steps should, should be made to um, alleviate the situation. This particular document does also have um, a lot of detail on how Indians lived, and there's a lot of description of, of the practice of fishing in the winter and things like that. So, so again, an, an interesting one for, for social history. This is a matter that would have been considered wholly a matter of concern for the Canadian government. You probably wouldn't find anything about this in the, in, in the general correspondence which we have. And again, a search of, of the catalogue would probably, probably wouldn't turn up any reference to this kind of material. 
So again, it would be a, a question of, um, in this case, I think, getting the sessional papers up and, and having a look, look for these kind of topics. These 19th century papers, and in many respects, the 19th century represents a kind of high point for these papers. And reporting is very detailed, very voluminous. The governments were keen on, on, on having information. Officials were keen on justifying their posts by handing reports in. I mean, in, in, in my research, for example, I was, I was quite interested in, um, in vets in, in the Cape Colony. And um, a, vet, a veterinary guy, it was a, a Scotsman, had been appointed there. The problem which he was faced with, and the reason the government appointed him, was that the industry was suffering because of the existence of mange in sheep, you know, which caused the wool to fall out. And this disease was caused by a tiny insect, which is, you can't really see it. It's a bit too small just, just on the visibility. His job was to go out among these Afrikaners in the crew and convince them that this disease was, in fact, caused by these tiny insects and that it could be gotten rid of by chemical dipping. And his report, report for the year is about 200, 200 printed pages. And he, he, describes, he describes everything. He describes how you know, he stayed with certain farmers and, what they, and how some of them wouldn't allow him to stay and how he had to sleep on, you know, outside for the night and this kind of thing. And he describes setting up a, a microscope in, in a village hall in which he placed some of these um, insects and inviting farmers to come and look at them and how they said this was the kind of magic lantern show and he was pulling the wool over, over their eyes as it were with this. <coughs> but when I was in the Cape Archive, I found the original of this document and it was a manuscript which had just been written up, obviously, at night, you know, after he'd finished his work. And the whole thing just doesn't have any alterations in it, hardly any crossings out. And this, this whole report, really thick thing, was, was, was published as a, a sessional paper. But again, it's an extremely personal document, very detailed, names a lot of names, individual farmers, names talks, discusses what they were like, how they lived, what conditions were like on individual farms. So there's some fascinating stuff in here, which, which I think is overlooked because we don't really have the, 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 the necessary detail in the catalogue. So I say the, the 19th century is very strong as, as far as these papers are concerned. In 1904, there are lots of cutbacks and they, and they became very, become very thin for a while. And during the First World War, they kind of almost die out again. After, after the First World War, once we get into the 1920s and the Colonial Development Act in 1929, the British government's very committed to developing colonies and to getting some kind of economic benefit out of them and increasing um, productivity in agriculture. And again, the reports become much more substantial. And another feature of the 20th century ones is that the crown colonies, many of the African colonies, the more recent colonies, colonies in the, in the, in the East and in the West Indies, whereas before the, these kinds of papers didn't really exist for them, but in the 20th century they do, and they similarly begin producing this kind of material. And I've just got a few of these for you to take a look at. This is... 1922 one for Nigeria. It's, it's just got a, a typed-up um, contents list, so it's easy enough to have a quick look through it. But the kind of things you'd expect there, really, there's um, quite a lot to do with agriculture, uh, lands departments and so forth. There's always a medical report. Medical officers were always appointed um, to colonies from, say, the 1870s. So it's a good run of those. Down the bottom, you'll see one, one on the railway and, and UD coal mines. Um, coal was discovered in Nigeria in the early 20th century out in 
in the eastern part of the colony, the place called, now called Anugu. The British wants to exploit the coal and, and bring it down to the coast for export. So there's a lot of railway building in the first 20 years of, of the 20th century in Nigeria. And again, there's ex- extensive reporting of, of this process. And another feature of, of these reports is after the first time we start seeing photographs, whereas in the 19th century ones, you, you just don't see them. We're only in the last few years of the of the uh, 19th century. Now you get lots of photographs. This one, interestingly, from the, considering the way these things were produced, these photographs are actually just stuck into the report. They're not printed as part of the, um, of the process. The obviously supplements the so, art series of Colonial Office Library photographs in CO1069. And I, I suspect many, many of these photos are, are replicated. There. Another feature of the, 19, the interwar period is that there's a great, quite a lot of concern with agricultural development and also a lot, a lot of concern with agriculture, uh, with environment. And here we see early attempts to establish forest reserves in the 1920s. And medical officers' reports are always a strong feature of these interwar sessional papers. Here we've got an article by a doctor called E. Maples, on some experiments he did in the treatment of leprosy. And this is in addition to lots of statistical material about disease and more general observations. But doctors were able to um, publish individual articles in these sessional papers. These are articles which probably wouldn't have been able to make it into into a a top journal like like the Lancet or or something like that. But nevertheless, it, it, it gives them an outbreak for publishing their work. And again, individuals are always named in these reports. Moving on about 10 or, 10 or 15 years, a SIN report for Tanganyika Territory, now Tanzania. Again, we, we get a listing. Same kind of report, really. Agriculture always features quite strongly. There's always a medical report, always a report on native administration, as it, as it's called then, fairly, fairly common to all these colonial sessional papers. Here's one from the vet. Tanganyika was, was a pastoral country. The government was very keen on exporting meat and developing the industry, so there were a number of vets there, government vets. Again, they're able to publish um, their research articles in, in a sessional paper. And uh, there's an awful lot on, on environment here. It's a very useful source for environmental history. This illustrates a, a colonial debate on soil erosion, as, as government officials were convinced that African practices in the industry led to soil erosion, desertification. So there's a kind of an experiment in which certain practices are used compared to, to um, you know, the, what's going out in the countryside. Again, useful theme for environmental history. There's always reports on native administration, as I, as I was saying, District officers usually named and, and give their report. Give, they tend to give as much insight into the mentality of the, of the district officers, really. But again, you'll find the name of this chap you know, mentioned there and the na- person who wrote the main article as well. And the district officer, Mr. O.A. Flynn, writes that the natives took their losses with the phlegmatic calm which years of adversity, disease and poverty have developed in them to on living and moving among them the lethargy so frequently, um, frequently commented upon in connection with coastal districts becomes understandable. 
pulls their buckler and shield and effectively softens the blows, which fate and so on and so forth. Again, there's much talk of, of drought and locusts, and this environmental theme is, is, again, always very strong in these kinds of papers. Well, that's the end of the presentation. At the end of the 1930s, obviously, the Second World War breaks out. Much less effort is put in, into producing these kinds of papers, and they, they fall away just as summary reports. You just get a few pages, usually. And at the end of the war, they never kind of quite recover. So although we have these papers up until the end of empire, really, up until the 1960s. The later ones are rather less useful, I, I think. And the two really good periods for these sorts of papers are the second half of the 19th century and the, the interwar period, I, I think. Um, that's enough from me, I guess. This podcast was recorded live on the 19th of July, 2012, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyrighted at the National Archives. All rights reserved.